So we're starting this evening our, our series on Ephesians. Uh, we're going to use the words that we'll be reading, uh, to, we'll be speaking to us from later on as our opening reading. Ephesians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfilment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. I think it's more than enough for one sermon in that particular passage, but we're going to focus in our worship um, very well-known verses from Romans, Romans chapter 3. Blessed is the person who has consented to become the close friend of faith and of prayer. He lives in single-mindedness and makes prayer and faith stop by with him. So said Ephraim, the Syrian church father and poet back in the 4th century. I like that picture of making faith and prayer your constant companions, your closest friends, having them live with you in your home. Faith and prayer are great friends with each other, of course. Faith in God naturally issues in prayer to God. And prayer is a natural expression of faith. If you don't have faith, why would you pray to a God you don't believe in? Some people do, of course, because prayer can be an instinctive response on our part when something goes wrong and all else fails. But if you don't believe, then prayer tends to be the last resort of desperation rather than the first response when a crisis looms. If, on the other hand, you have faith but you don't pray, that's a really strange scenario. Prayerlessness has been likened to practical atheism. If you have faith, why not express that in prayer? So faith and prayer go hand in hand, and that's why the term prayer of faith is quite familiar to us. And that doesn't refer to the kind of prayer where we bullied our minds into trying to believe that that something impossible might actually happen if we pray hard enough. It's rather the case that prayer, prayer expresses a heartfelt trust in God, a readiness to rely on God, a willingness to commit ourselves and whatever situation we face into his hands, in, in the hope, the confidence, the expectation that he will work by his Spirit and work in partnership with us to bring about a satisfactory resolution. So, prayer and faith 
belong together. And Ephraim pronounces a blessing on anyone who befriends prayer and faith and makes them his constant companions. We're looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesians over the coming weeks in our evening services as part of our focus on prayer. The letter is addressed to the saints, those who are also faithful, or believing, or trustworthy, or reliable in Christ Jesus. The word is one which carries a range of meanings, from having faith and exercising belief, through to being trustworthy and faithful and reliable. And people have debated which of those meanings Paul has in mind here. How can you be a saint if you haven't got faith? It seems tautological to talk about people who are saints and who are also believers. So perhaps he means those who are saints and who are also faithful and reliable. But then that means if we're a little bit unreliable, a bit wavering, a bit weak, a bit wobbly, does that mean the letter isn't addressed to us? Perhaps there's an implied element of exhortation in the address, as those who are in Christ Jesus. We ought to be holy and faithful. We ought to be believing. And the address gives us something we need to live up to and aspire to become. Maybe so. But whatever way you interpret the greeting, whether the saints are addressed as those who believe or as those who are faithful, it seems to me that the implication of that address is that we, as saints, should be people of prayer. If we are believers, then the natural expression of our trust in God should be to express that faith in prayer. If we are called to be faithful, then one expression of that is being faithful in prayer. So whatever way you cut it, it seems to me that if we are addressed as saints, people who have been made holy, people who have been set apart and dedicated to God, then the significance and natural and practical outworking of that identity should be that as saints we are also people of prayer. And actually, though the rest of the chapter isn't a prayer as such, it's full of prayerful language. The greeting itself is a blessing, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's one of the lovely things about the greetings at the start of Paul's letters, that they start in this way. Rather than saying hi or greetings, he characteristically starts his letter with a prayer for grace and peace for the recipients. The grace and peace that come to them from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the ideas of grace and peace crop up in the following eulogy or expression of praise to God. God's grace has been shown in his generosity, in blessing us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Over and above what we can comprehend or deserve, God has given to us. The God whom we worship is anything but stingy when it comes to pouring out his goodness into our lives. And when we recognise that, our natural response is, is to praise him. It's a natural expression of prayer, unless we sing the praise, in which case it's, a, it's a, an expression in song. But when we realise how good God is, our response is to say, wow, thank you. And that's prayer. God's grace is also shown in the way in which he took the initiative in making us holy and blameless in his sight. His concern for you, his plan for your life, dates back to before the creation of the world. From before the beginning of time, God has known all about you. 
and has set his sights, has made it his aim to make you holy and blameless in his sight. It's a mind-boggling idea to get your head round. But it's one of the features of the Pauline view of grace that God makes the first move towards us. And he decides he's going to do that way back before year dot. So we've done nothing to deserve or merit God's favour towards us. We can't have done, because we weren't even a twinkle in anyone's eye but God's then. But his good pleasure and his loving purpose towards us were that we should be adopted as his children. That's what God decided out of the goodness of his heart that he was going to do for us. No wonder Paul says that all that redounds to the praise of his glorious grace which he's freely bestowed on us in the one he loves. God's goodness to us from before the foundation of the world is given to us in his Son. And so, all this grace which comes in our direction, what's our response to it when we finally arrive on the scene? Well, we screw it up. We make a mess of our lives. We contaminate and we spoil the goodness of God. And what is God's response when we screw up and throw away his plan for our lives? He forgives our sins in accordance with the, the riches of his grace that he lavishes on us with all wisdom and understanding. It doesn't say, well, stuff, that, that hasn't worked, I'm going to let them go. No. When we muck up, he forgives us. He will not let the mess we make and the mistakes we make derail his plan for our lives. He redeems us. He wins us back. He restores us again, even at the intensely personal cost of the death of his only son, who took upon himself at the cross the catastrophic consequences of our sins, so that God's good and gracious purpose for us should not be derailed by our folly. That's where the peace comes in. In the superabundance of his grace towards us, God has made peace with us by redeeming our lives and forgiving our sins. If God's grace wasn't enough, first of all, to make us say, wow, that's amazing that God should decide that we should be his children, the fact that he continues with us when we reject him, that is amazing. Hallelujah. No wonder Paul can start his letter with a blessing about God's grace and God's peace upon his readers. Because in his expression of praise to God, he can see just how gracious God has been, right from the word go, from before the word go. How he's gone out of his way to make peace with us and borne the full cost of doing so himself. No wonder Paul takes his time to bless God for all his goodness, which is manifested so clearly in his grace. Grace. God's goodness to us from before the dawn of time. Peace. God's setting things right with us when we make a mess of our lives. Two terms which are included in a blessing in the second verse of this letter and which Paul spends the next half dozen verses expounding. Grace and peace. Sometimes if you don't know how to pray, where to begin, start with those two words. Grace peace. Remind yourself of how God has shown you grace through his son Jesus Christ. 
Remind yourself how God has given you peace through Jesus. God's goodness to you when you've done nothing to deserve it. God's peace when you make a mess of things. And as you face situations heading your way, on the basis of the grace and peace that God has given you in Christ, ask for his grace and peace to be with you in the face of what is coming up. Grace to cope. Peace to have the inner resources we need. Grace and peace. Two words which are so easy to remember and yet which convey such a depth of meaning. Grace and peace. Two words to get our prayers off the ground if we don't know where to start. These opening verses in Ephesians aren't the easiest in the Bible. It's one long convoluted sentence. And and the more you read it, the more it's easy to get bogged down on difficult questions about predestination and atonement and how our free will interacts with God's will. And it's one of those passages where the more you study it, the more questions you end up asking in your mind. And yet, these words were not written for people with PhDs or degrees in theology. They were written for ordinary Christians who were simply up against it and who needed to know that God's grace and God's peace were there for them. Who needed to know that their security rested upon the fact that God had chosen them from before the foundation of the world and he was never going to let them go. And even when they made a mess of things, God's peace was there because God gave his son to redeem them so that they might be holy and blameless in his sight. God has loved you from eternity. And when you get it wrong, God forgives you. All the goodness of God is bound up in Christ for you and in knowing Christ you are eternally secure. So whether you look back to before the dawn of time or forward to the end of time or just think right now about the mess you find yourself in it's all about finding God's grace and God's peace for you. Those eternal qualities of God which are yours in Christ Jesus, right here, right now. One of the things which prayer does is it appropriates truths from God's word and applies them to our situation. Makes them true for us in the present. There's so much we don't understand and we can't be sure about in this letter. Did Paul write it or not? Well, we can't be sure. Was it written to Christians in Ephesus or not? Well, we can't be sure. Does it matter? No, it doesn't. Because when we pray, these words become true for us here and now. When we pray, these words become God's word to us in the present. The grace and peace that God stored up for you from eternity, they come to you in the present when you pray. And the knowledge that that is the case can produce a song or a prayer of praise in our hearts as it did in the heart of Paul, whoever it was wrote these words all those years ago. When we pray, the grace and the peace that God stored up for you from before the foundation of the world, come out of the eternal past and become part of your present reality, inspiring you to praise and put your trust in the goodness of God. These words were written to be words of assurance and security for those who are in Christ. They're written to be words of assurance and security 
And as we look around at our deeply flawed and troubled world, how should we pray for that? Matt, thank you for your prayers earlier. This amazing passage has helpful suggestions for that as well. Because when we look back in the past, we find the origins of God's grace and peace before the dawn of time. When we look forward, we find that God's eternal purpose is to bring everything, everything in heaven, everything on earth, together under one head, the head of Jesus Christ. When time has run its course, when everything reaches its appointed conclusion, that is what God has determined to do. Everything will be brought under Christ's control. Everything will be subsumed into Christ. Nothing will be left outside his sovereignty. This world is not going to end up spiralling out of control into some kind of final cosmic conflagration because God is in charge and his ultimate purpose is that everything in heaven and on earth will be brought together with Christ as head. That is our hope. That is our confidence. That is, means we can face the future with confidence rather than with fear because this is what God is going to do. We might not see how he's going to do it or what it's going to look like, but it's what he's promised. What exactly would it look like? And how would it happen when everything is brought under the headship of Christ? Well, rather like some political manifestos, the passage is frustratingly short on detail. But then hopefully God is more trustworthy than your average politician. But what would it look like then? One commentary puts it like this, everything comes together in him. What is divided is unified in him. The significance of the cosmos is made known in him. I guess all of us here would have different ideas and pictures about what the the end will look like in practice when Christ is all in all. And because it hasn't happened yet, all we have is sanctified guesswork on the basis of the images and pictures that we find in Scripture. But when we face a chaotic and a dangerous world, and we come to God in prayer, it's worth remembering that God knows how it's all going to turn out in the end, because he's already written the end of the story. That was written before the foundation of the world, and whatever ups and downs we might experience along the way, the final outcome is unalterable. God goes ahead of us. He leads the way into the future that he has already prepared. Prayer shows us the path that we need to take to work out our part in his future. And when we pray, one of the things that we're doing is bringing that future, when everything will be brought under the headship of Christ, into the presence. God, that is your ultimate purpose. Everything will be subsumed under the headship of Christ. Lord, may that be the case here and now in those areas that we pray for. Lord, bring it all under Christ's control. Everything that's currently chaotic, channel it, harness it towards that final outcome when Jesus will be Lord of all. When we pray for the world, we are asking that the final outcome of everything being brought under the control of Christ would impact now upon the present bringing forward into our present that order which will ultimately prevail under the uncontested 
reign of Jesus. Lord, bring that sovereignty to bear now, we pray. What difference our prayers make is difficult to say. Again, it's a matter of sanctified guesswork. But if we have an idea of how things will be in the end, it shows us how things ought to be now. And that vision can guide our prayers. So these opening verses in Ephesians, they may not specifically teach us about prayer, but these verses provide material for our prayers. Because where we are now in the present, when we need grace and peace, we see that God's grace towards us was planned and purposed from before the foundation of the world. And when we make a mess of things and we don't deserve anything but judgment, God gives us his peace because he's redeemed us through his son, Jesus Christ. And when we look around at a desperate world, we see that in the end, Christ will be all in all and we ask for his sovereignty to prevail here and now. In Christ, God is here with us. Right here. Right now. Prayer is what helps us to perceive that that is the reality. In Christ, God is with you. In grace and in peace and in sovereign power. Right here. Right now. Let's pray. Lord, open our hearts to yourself and pour in your grace. Whatever our unanswered questions, may we know that it's your, you've always purposed for us to be your beloved children. Pour your peace into our hearts. Where we've got it wrong, where we find ourselves in the wrong situation, Lord, give us your peace. Enable us to place ourselves in your hands and find security there. Thank you for giving your Son to redeem us. And Lord, when we face the future and it's terrifying, enable us to look beyond the immediate future into the assurance that in the end, everything will be brought under your control. Enable us to find confidence in you. Show us how to pray. Bring your kingdom into our present worlds. Lord, you've made us your holy people. You call us to be believing and faithful. Help us in our prayers. In Jesus' name. Amen.